right. Um, hey, we're in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. I saw the guys over here waiting faithfully to pass out Bibles, so my bad. Daniel chapter 1, if you guys need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one. I'm, I'm teaching out of the ESV. That's what they're passing out right now. Um, we started the book of Daniel last week. So you're like, really? It's your anniversary? This would have been the best week to start it, I know, but I got too excited. So um, we started the book of Daniel last week. Let me explain one thing really quick before we just jump into it. I would say this. Um, if you missed last week... I would say please go back and listen. I try to give like an overall view and context to where we're at today. I'll still give that a little bit, but I hope and think it will be helpful in the long run. Um, I think sometimes the Bible is very ominous where we look at these individual books, but we don't see how they're working together. Um, we don't realize that Daniel was alive when Jeremiah was alive, when Ezekiel was alive, when different kings of Judah were alive. And I try to just kind of give a different, like an overall view um, so you kind of see where this fits in biblical history, in history itself. I think that's important. I think what we read will have more weight to it when we understand that. So I'm trying to just give a little overview briefly, but um, you guys know this. We went through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, like last year, like even the year before, for like 18 months. We went through these books of the Bible, and I'm going to do a little test. If you guys remember, after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two halves, but it wasn't like equal halves, but it split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called, let's go, last week we struggled. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and you had 10 tribes in the north, two tribes primarily in the south, and the idea was uh, the north fell in the 8th century by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a world power, came in, destroyed the 10 tribes. The 10 tribes of the north never had one good king, never had a revival at any point. It was just like terrible king after terrible king. They worshiped other gods, false gods. God's like, all right, you're going to be taken captive now. So they went, uh, but it kind of like went off into the oblivion of history, sadly, the 10 tribes of Israel. The two tribes, you have like Judah primarily, Benjamin, a little bit of Levi, but you have them in the south. This is where the temple was. This is where Jerusalem is. They lasted a little bit longer. If you remember their last revivals with a guy named King Josiah, ironically, but not really ironic. I don't know what to say. Uh, but King Josiah, then after him was just terrible kings. And it kind of just slowly fell apart. The Babylon, So the Assyrians in the north, the Babylonians in the south attacked the south. And then kind of one king after the other, man, just disobedient to God, disobedient to God. And you see three different waves of like the Babylonians coming in Jerusalem and taking them back to Babylon. Like these waves of coming in and taking them back. Daniel, the guy we're reading about, and his friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, like his buddies, as we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were kind of part of that first wave. They were taken around 605 BC into Babylon. Jerusalem fell about 20 years later, I think around 586 BC. And so there's like a lot going on during this time. A lot of other authors, a lot of other people that coexisted, biblically speaking, during this time. Um, so I want you to kind of see the picture of like, here are some teenagers taking, it says, from the royal family, and they're now taken to Babylon. A good way to try to get the kings to behave in Jerusalem, if you're King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a good way to try to make them behave is by taking their children. And it's basically like, hey, you better listen, we have your kids. And then we're going to teach them our ways. And they try to assimilate the Jewish people in general, but specifically these guys in a higher, more educated way, assimilate into the Babylonian culture. And so we kind of saw that last week. You guys with me so far? Is that making sense? Timelines, maybe your brain's like, I don't know. It's okay. Um, but this is kind of the context that we're reading this in. And what we looked at last week, this is a more overall general kind of overview of the book, but we saw the hope for the exile, hope for the exile. Jeremiah was a prophet during this time, and he's in Jerusalem going, guys, don't fight this. This is part of God's judgment. 
Everyone's like, Jeremiah, you're a false prophet. Of course God's going to bless us. He's like, no, we've been disobedient. We're going to be taken captive. We're going to be there for 70 years. He's being very specific, and we'll see more why that later. But for 70 years, we're going to be there. And they thought Jeremiah was a false prophet, beat him up, persecuted him. Obviously, Jeremiah's rights in that time. And just you have them being taken into Babylon. And, and here's what's important, and here's why I bring this up. God's like, listen, you're going to be slaves in this land, but pray for the peace of the city. Like, make it prosper. Plant vineyards, build homes, have kids. Even though you're in exile, even though you're a captive, don't lose heart. This is 70 years. God kind of gave them hope for today by showing them their future. God's like, here's your future. I'm going to, in a sense, bring you back into your land after 70 years. We're going to see that later, even in the story of Daniel. He's like, I'm going to bring you back, but don't lose heart. And don't despise where you live. Love where you live. Make it prosper. Like, be people that actually benefit the community and benefit the city. Even though people hate you and you're, you're Jewish and you're the minority, you're going you're gonna to make this city prosper by how you work and how you love and how you care for your neighbor. You guys with me on that? And that's where in Jeremiah 29, 11, God's like, I know the plans that I have for you. I know the future that I have for you. You know, and we talked about that idea of, like, that has so much more weight to it when you understand the context. So just this overall overview of the hope for the exile. Today... Um, it's not hope for the exile, but today's title or the focus is faithful in exile, faithful in exile. And here's the idea. Um, what we see kind of right away, we're going to see these different stories that come up. It's some, some stories that you probably are familiar with, but I hope you see it differently as an adult now. But this idea of how do you and I be faithful as the minority in a community? Meaning, um, cr- we live, even in South Florida, like, it's like a post-Christian, like our country, post-Christian kind of era. I mean, it's not the predominant thing. People are like, you know, Christianity has a great reputation amongst the world. Like, no, it's, it's not the beliefs, the values. It's not primary. And so how do you and I be faithful in a quote-unquote pagan city or culture or where we live? Daniel is so spot on for us, I think, today. How do you feel like when you're losing, when you feel like the empire, like you're taken from your land, Jerusalem, it's, it's fallen essentially. How can we still have an impact? Even though we feel like the minority, even though we feel like we're losing. And so I shared this quote with you last week. It's from a book called Creative Minority. I think it's powerful, and I just want to read it to you. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. This is the idea of how we want to live. Like, this summarizes Daniel, I think, so well. Even though it's a minority of people, a small select group of people, how do we live in such a way that it's winsome to the world, where we're stubbornly loyal to Jesus and to each other? Like, this is the way in which you and I need to live to win the world, essentially. I was sitting this week, and I missed who said it, but here's a quote. I thought this was so spot on. He says, the church has not been arranged on the side of the gospel against its environment. Too often, it, the church, has been quietly absorbed by its environment. We don't want that to happen. So here's the idea with Daniel. Did Daniel and his friends influence their culture and their city, or were they overwhelmed and became just like their culture and their city? So meaning for you and I, are we more like our culture, or are we more influencing culture? Are we more trying to win people to the gospel of Jesus, or more are we being like one? You know, let me put it this way. Um, I've had some friends, I've had people I've met or worked with. Maybe you know people like this. You, you meet someone who's excited about Jesus, excited about the gospel. They're like, yes, I want to win South Florida for Jesus. And they have this mentality, a few years go by, you kind of see them drifting from the Lord, you kind of wonder, where are they now? Maybe, maybe you find them or see them on social media or some aspect, they're completely out there, anti-Jesus, anti-gospel, 
and you're like, what happened? And then you see them essentially living like everyone else is living. And you're going, something happened. Maybe they had this mindset originally to live with Jesus, walk with Jesus, and then you just see like the culture and the tension pull their heart away from Jesus. And, I, and I, I'm bringing this up because I want to be honest. Like there is this tension, I think, in all of us where you go, I want to be kingdom people. I want to live for Jesus and his kingdom, and I want to make a difference in this world. But maybe you're starting to see your heart drift. Maybe you're starting to see like things that you used to have convictions on, you don't have those same convictions anymore. Maybe you're starting to see like this slowly, this slow compromise where you're like, I used to be passionate and now I'm more passionate about this other thing that's going on in our world. Maybe the gospel becomes secondary. Or maybe your views on sexuality, on money, on work, maybe your views on those topics are not like the gospel, not like the Bible, but it's, it's like opposite of that. It's more like the culture itself more than it is scripture. What I'm trying to get is we see this all the time and here were some young men who were the minority in the king's palace, eating the king's food, being taught by the best teachers. I mean, they're in like Babylon University and somehow they still remain faithful to Yahweh. Somehow they still remain faithful to the one true God. And it's mind blowing. I think we have a lot to learn from them. Yes, would you agree? And I also wanna share this too. If you are new or newer and you're like, I'm not even a follower of Jesus, someone invited me, welcome, I'm so glad you're here. And this might be like a strange message in some ways. Like this is kind of be like how to be a resilient Christian in a pagan city. You're like, um, I'm not a Christian. I'm sorry, like you get to kind of be on the, a fly on the, uh, in, the, I don't know, in the house. Like you get to kind of see what's going on um, or fly on the wall. You get to kind of see what's happening. Because I, I just wanna say this, like you're more than welcome. Like we want you to know the same Jesus. We want you to embrace the gospel, who Jesus is, what he's done. We want you to know him. Like there's no shame in that. Jesus has radically changed our lives. And I think our hope now is saying, okay, how do we still be distinct and live set apart? And just because the world thinks this or says this, we cannot embrace everything our culture dictates to us. And so what we see with Daniel and these guys is like this resilient faith. And also like, it's weird. They kind of knew what to fight for and when to fight and when to go, that's not something I'm going to fight for. Sure, call me Belteshazzar, call, call me Shadrach. I'll change my name, but I still know who I am. And so we see like this weird, like they knew where to draw the line. And so my hope is like we can learn to like, where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? Are you guys with me? That's kind of the idea. Cool? That's like the whole book of Daniel. No? Yes? All right. We're just going to read it. I'm sorry. Like you've talked too much. I know. All right. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to pick up there. We'll read through verse 21. I want you to see what's going on. Remember, they're in the king's palace. They've been given new names. They're gonna ha- they have a seat at his table, essentially eat his food. I mean, the best food probably in the world. Here's what happens. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. We'll read the story so you can get the context, then we'll pray and jump in. Verse 8. It says, but Daniel, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel says this, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Compare and contrast and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they, Daniel and his friends, were in better appearance and fatter in flesh. And I looked at the word, it does mean fat. And fatter in flesh. <laughs> better appearance, fatter in flesh that all, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. 
we'll talk about how this is a miracle. Trust me. All right. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is going to be key in the next chapter. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded, so after the three years, remember the three years in the palace, at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood, therefore, in light of that, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times. Everyone say ten times. They fasted for how many days? Ten. And they're ten times better than all the magicians and eunuchs that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's a big jump, by the way. That's about 70 years. Daniel's there, about 15, all the way until King Cyrus' first year. It's kind of giving us a future little glimpse. Why don't we just pray? Um, just invite the Lord to kind of speak and hopefully just bring clarity uh, to us. So let's do that. Father, we just want to thank you again. Um, there's so much here. There's so much, there's so much beauty in this passage, God. I ask that you bring clarity. I ask that you bring insight. I ask that you, God, by your spirit, would bring power into our lives. Um, help us to learn from this. Help us to become like this. But Lord, I ask that even at the same time, um, Jesus, that you'd bring our eyes and focus on you. That Jesus, you are the greater than Daniel who resolved not to defile yourself. Lord, I ask that this is not just a, a story for us to moralize, but just to have this future and a hope by looking to you, Jesus. And so I ask that you bring clarity and insight in your precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's talk about compromise uh, for a second. Yeah, um, you guys know this, but we live in a world filled with compromise. And before I kind of paint it in like a bad picture, you know this, I, I know this, if, you know, compromise can be good, especially when you get married. When you get married, you know, you try to compromise, you know, like what to buy, where to eat, what all the little details. I think husbands, the way we compromise is whatever you want, babe. <laughs> all right. That's kind of how we compromise. It's like, yeah, like 100, zero. I don't know. But we're like, yeah, whatever you want, babe. Um, but we can see how compromise many times in marriage can be a really good thing. It can cause there to be like, okay, like this is not something. I don't want to die on this hill. You choose. Like whatever. Compromise in times can be healthy. I think that we've also seen at the same time, it can be a good thing. I think compromise, when, especially when scriptures talk about it, it can be this very subtle thing with small kind of, okay, I'm subtly not doing things I used to do or doing things I wouldn't do. It can be small, but it leads to massive big change. That cannot be good. So we know this. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen just like small, like things you used to have convictions on, things that you used to be passionate about. And you're like, you know what? I, that show, I would never watch it 10 years ago. Now I watch it all the time. I would never speak that way, but now I speak that way. I would never do that at my work because I, I feel like I'm kind of not being, you know, honest in my work by not sending that or sending that email or saying that or taking that, but no big deal. We can see how compromise just over time can just eat away until you go, how did I get here? How did I end up here? And I do think there's something about how do we stay resilient in our faith saying, no, like I have these convictions and people, community, culture, it's not going to sway me from these convictions. I think we've seen this. We've seen people have convictions, and we see them slowly kind of drift and depart from those convictions. Here's what one author said I thought was really profound. He says, compromise has been a cancer in the church from its inception. David Levy said this. I think we've seen that compromise. Remember the church of Pergamos in, in the book of Revelation. He's like, you've compromised. You used to be sold out, but you've slowly just drifted. Like, what's happened? 
The book of Hebrews talks about not to drift away from this so great of salvation that we have, to be anchored in Christ and not to like drift. But it's crazy how com- compromise, man, it can creep into all of our lives. I don't think anyone's immune to this. I think all of us need to see, like, you see convictions and you see compromise and you see these convictions being to slowly change. And, like, how do we fight that? How do we be aware of that? How do we say, you know what? No, if scripture says, it doesn't matter what culture says, my work says, my friend group says, what I'm seeing on social media, none of that's going to change the scriptures and the conviction that God has given me. Like, how do we fight for that? A.W. Tozer, I mean, he goes down as one of the most fiery, passionate preachers of all times. Here's what he says. And I thought this was fascinating. He said this years ago, and I think how much more today. He says, a new Decalogue, think the Ten Commandments, a new Decalogue has been adopted by the neo-Christians of our day. Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes too. Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable. Ugh. You kind of see this be adopted in the church, where you slowly go, you know what, who am I? I don't want to speak into that. I don't want to say anything about that. You know what, this idea of being salt and light, mm, you know what, it's, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Here's the thing. Somehow Daniel and his friends could live with these certain convictions, be seen in good light, move up, in a sense, in rank and in their job and their occupation and still be faithful. It's possible to have, be successful and to still live distinctly for Jesus. I know we think it's not, but there's so many examples of people who've been distinct in their faith and lived for Jesus and not compromised and still moved up the ranks in the worldly status. We see this with Joseph. We see this here. We see this time and time again. So I want to like look at this and unpack this because I don't want to just move on from this. So here's the idea, um, the simple idea, and I think it's so profound for us today. It's simply how do we be faithful in a pagan culture, or I should put it like for us, how do we be faithful in a post-Christian culture? How do we be faithful? Like, how do we do this? Our text shows us some deep insight. Here's the first one. Uh, resolve to be different, then depend on God's grace, and then trust him with the results. So let's just look at this as an overview. Dep- uh, the resolve to be different. How do we be faithful? Right now, 2024, in South Florida, how do we be faithful to Jesus? This is pretty simple, but very difficult. Resolve in your heart to be, di- to be different, to be distinct, to be set apart. You have to predetermine now. I'm going to live differently, as uncomfortable as that might be or look or appear. So look at verse 8. What does it say in verse 8 about Daniel? Verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So uh, again, I just want you to imagine the context. You're in Jerusalem. You're 13, 14, 15. You're probably seeing Jeremiah in the streets of Jerusalem, like saying, guys, we're going to be taken by the Babylonians. You're Jeremiah. You're part of the royal family. You're these three buddies of his. And then eventually you see the Babylonians come in. You are now taken into Babylon. You're on this long journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. Everything you know is taken away from you. You're now in this foreign land. You're not with your family. You're not with your parents. You're not really with your primary community, just a few buddies. And they're trying to basically indoctrinate you. Live this way. Here's what we Babylonians or Chaldeans, here's what we believe and think. There's a lot of the occult taught here. A lot of like witchcraft and sorcery actually taught to these guys. A lot of things shoved down their throat and forced on them. And I want you to think about that, just being ripped out of your, like, your culture into this moment. Like, what do you do? How do you live? How do you say, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus? Again, I mentioned this last week, but what a testament to all of these, their parents of these four guys. I mean, they're just like, yo, we're going to live differently. You're going to see story after story of just them being different in difficult moments. But you're, you're there. You're before the king. You're before the chief eunuch, the guy that's there to train you and teach you. And you got to see this. They're like, come, learn from us, eat our food, uh, stand before the king, 
You're going to walk through this process. We're going to rename you. We're going to give you a whole new identity. You're no longer Daniel. We're going to rename you. You're no longer Mishael. You're Shadrach. Like, we're going we're gonna to change it. We're going to change everything. All right? I want you to kind of process that. And I want you to see these guys going, no, no, no. It doesn't matter what you do to us. It doesn't matter what you say, what you teach us. We are going to resolve in our heart to be different. All right, so one translation, the New King James, I like how it puts it. Actually, I think does better reflect the Hebrew that's here. But in the New uh, King James, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Love that. He purposed in his heart. He resolved. He predetermined, doesn't matter what comes my way, I'm not going to compromise in this way. Now, a few questions come up, which I do want to look at. Like, it's funny, Daniel's like, you can rename me, you can teach me all these things you believe. Sure, do that. But here's the area I'm not going to compromise, food. You're not going to cha change my view of food. Now, there's a few ideas around that. Maybe it's because most likely it's not going to be like a kosher meal. There's probably pig. There's probably lobster. I don't know. It's probably like, okay, I can't eat that stuff. Uh, but the wine probably was kosher. There probably was food that he could have eaten or meat he could have eaten. So some argue this. Some argue that it wasn't just because it wasn't kosher. Some say maybe Daniel didn't want to eat it because the meat was most li likely sacrificed to pagan gods and pagan idols. And maybe that could be totally it. I don't want to eat this. This was sacrificed to pagan gods, pagan idols. The, the reality is we don't really know why he's like, I'm going to die on this hill of the food. But this is where he like kind of drew the line. And now I, I do want to explore that because I do think we as Christians struggle with this. You're thinking, where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? You ever been a part of something where like everyone's clapping for something and you're like, I don't know if I want to clap for that. That's not something I want to celebrate. Or you've been a part of a meeting or certain thing and you're like, I don't know if that, that's not something like I want to give myself over to. And you're like, should I fight this? Do I fight this? Here's the thing I, I do want to bring up. Um, I do think a lot of day, a lot, like in our day, we live in a moment where people try to act like the Bible is very gray. I really struggle with this. Like, well, I guess we'll never really know, you know, who's to say what it really means. And I love this. People try to live as if the Bible speaks, not in black and white, but, but gray. I'll say this. I don't think God's trying to give us his word to confuse us. I don't think God's trying to give us a word to be like, so I guess we'll never know. I, I don't think that. Um, there is something beautiful. I've talked about this a few, a few times, but um, there's something called the doctrine of perspicuity. Don't worry about the big word. It's always a simple meaning. But the doctrine of perspicuity, it just simply means this. It means um, we have a God who's a revealer. We have a God who wants to make things plain and simple. God is not the author of confusion. God is not trying to trick us. God is not trying to make it difficult. I don't want to play the game that the Bible is just really great, and I guess we'll never know. I don't want to play that. I, I don't like that. I think that's not true. I think it's not fair to scripture. God is like, he's the revelation of Jesus. God is a revealer of who he is in his will. I think we can know scripture. I think we can know what it means. I think there's a hard work to interpret. We have to give ourselves over to good hermeneutics and practices to understand what is the Bible saying absolutely. It will take work. But I don't think God's trying to trick us or make it difficult for us to understand his heart on name the topic. I don't think he's trying to make it difficult. However, there are different passages in the scripture that's like, you know what? This is a gray area. Romans 14 describes that. And you can read that later. Like, I don't know. Can we eat this uh, meat sacrifice idols? Some Christians are like, I can. Some are like, I can't. Paul summarizes and says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Some of you can do it in faith, do it. Some of you can't do it in faith, don't do it. The reason why I'm bringing this up is I do think one of these issues, like Daniel in Babylon, can he eat the meat? Some would argue, yes, absolutely he could, but he's not going to. And I don't know necessarily his heart and motives behind it. Why? Maybe it's because it's not kosher. Maybe it's because of sacrifice. I don't really know. But either way, this was like a conviction Daniel had. And he's like, I'm not going to compromise on this. And I find that fascinating. I do find that it's so easy for us. As soon as we get a little bit of pressure, we go, I had that conviction, but I guess I'll just surrender this conviction. I used to think that way. I don't think that way anymore. 
And all it took was just a little bit of outside pressure for us to surrender our convictions, not Daniel. Like, I want to say, resolve in your hearts certain issues and topics that will come up and say, this will be my response. And you filter it through a few different lenses. And you want to look at, is this Jesus' heart for this topic? Am I reflecting God in this? Like, we want to look at that. But this is going to be so, so key. Are you guys with me? So one thing, I just want to put up a few thoughts really quick, by the way. I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it's okay. Whatever. Um, when, I, when I'm talking to the idea of, like, where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? I, I want to put, how do we know where to draw the line? I'm going to put a few things up here. And this is so basic and so simple. But first thing is this. You can kind of see these bullet points. Scripture, obviously. Let's just start with Scripture. Guys, get to know the Bible. Get to know the Word. His Word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. All right? I would say, like, it's funny how people have comments and thoughts on certain topics. And I'm like, um, that is not Bible. It's like, I, how do you filter your opinions through Scripture? How do you say it's not my opinion? What does God's word say? How do we go back to scripture? I would say, let's go obviously to the Holy Spirit. We're gonna seek the Holy Spirit. I believe God's spirit lives and dwells in us. Some people, and, and Paul even does use the word of like your conscience, but I do believe it's pointing more and greater to the person of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in us and will actually make it clear, do go down that path, don't go down that path. I think that comes from deep intimacy and spending time with Jesus, but we have the spirit who lives and dwells in us. So I'd say this, you need to know the scripture front and back. Know it. Like, believe scripture, know scripture. Rely on the person of the Holy Spirit who wants to lead you into truth, as Jesus said. Obviously, this is clear, but I'd say prayer and ask for wisdom, meaning if you feel like, I don't, Josiah, I was at this work event, this thing was said and pushed on me, everyone's clapping, I, I had this weird thing in my heart that's like, that's not good. All right, I'll say this, pray and ask for wisdom. James 1 says, do you know if you ask for wisdom, God gives it liberally and freely? So here's the thing, I do think, I, and I love this question, how does someone get wisdom? You could say, read, talk to smart people, absolutely. But the Bible says how to get wisdom, ask. That is so profound, ask. You want wisdom? Ask the one who's ultimately the wisest of wise. Ask. Pray. Look to this word. Seek the Holy Spirit. And then obviously community. This idea of um, in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. The idea of like ask other people, what have you been here? Have you thought through this? Ask wiser believers who've been in the faith for a while or know the word. Like be in community. Daniel luckily had a few friends. They all four of them purpose in their heart, resolved in their heart. We're not going to go down that path. For whatever reason, they're like, cool, you can rename me. They were given like Babylonian pagan god names, right? Right? Sure, rename me. Call me, the, the, call me Naboo, whatever. Call me this idea of like I'm a pagan god, but I still know who I am. And I still know, I still know who I worship. I, I will embrace this aspect, this aspect, but not that aspect. I think this is so key to this passage. I love what John Ortberg said about this. Listen to this. He says, spiritually resilient people have a profound level of personal resolve to honor their deepest values. They refuse to live as passive victims of circumstances. We hear that. Resilient people refuse to live as passive, passive victims of circumstances. They are determined that they will not get tangled up in the things that might cause them to betray their deepest commitments. Ultimately, their resolve is to honor God no matter the price. Paul said it this way, all things are lawful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Another way, I like talk about my son. I'm like, hey, we'll talk about this at night. Something he did during the day. He said something at class. We get a call from the principal. Your son said something about, you know, the dog sniffing a butt. You're like, oh, gosh, here we go. Um, but you get these calls like, hey, we talked about this. You go, Micah, Micah, I love you, dude. We talked about this. Just because you can. How many of you heard this? Just because you can. 
doesn't mean you should, <laughs> right? And, and listen, this is something as adults, I think we need to hear this more than anyone. Just because we can, just because you can say that, go there, do that, act that way, just because you can doesn't mean you should. All things are lawful, not all things are edifying to the body of Christ. Not all things are edifying to the gospel of Jesus. Might be lawful. There are certain convictions I have that I'm not going to put on you, but I have certain convictions on certain topics I do think maybe are gray areas that I'm like, you know what? I'm okay from abstaining from that. I'm good. Now, I'm not going to be like, therefore, I'm more righteous than you. No. <laughs> I'm still a sinner saved by grace and need the righteousness of Jesus. But the, my point is, I have certain convictions. You might have certain convictions. And you're not here to like shove that down my throat. Your idea is, we go, okay, I want to seek out the heart of God and how to live and how to interact with this specific topic and what will most be like Jesus in this moment. And Jesus in different moments goes, come, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to sit down with sinners and tax collectors. We're going to eat and drink and then we're going to have this conversation about him and he won people to Christ. He, he did that at times. Other times, obviously, he calls for people. You brought a vipers and he calls them out specifically on their sins and speaks truth to them. My point being, like, we, there's this idea of... I know as Christians, we like want to rule on everything. Like someone's like, can God just like make it clear? No one's cool about this. And I want to make this really clear. The cool thing about this is God's like, I might not give you a specific command on fill in the blank, but I am giving you my Holy Spirit and I'm giving you wisdom. And I, I'm also creating opportunities for you to seek me and spend time with me and find out what to do and how to live. Like, I love that. Like, I love when God is like, I just, I'm putting you in this situation where like, you have to seek me to know how to respond. And in those moments, we build intimacy with Jesus. So are you guys following me on, on this context with Daniel? Daniel's like, give me a new name. I'll go and learn the Babylonian ways and teachings. I'm not going to eat that food, though. And by the way, man, that to me is crazy. Because I'm like, yo, this is probably the best food in the world. I mean, they're like at college, Babylon University. And like, this is not college food, right? This is not college cafeteria food. We're like, this is terrible. You're at the king's table. Like, this is the king's food. I mean, this is probably like, the, I don't know, just that meat that's like glowing. It's probably just amazing. And they're like, no, no. It's fascinating to me, the response in this. But I want us to see the whole idea of the resolve. Um, I thought this was fascinating, kind of in my study and, and kind of preparing for this. Um, Jonathan Edwards, you might have heard that name. I think he's one of the greatest thinkers that's ever goes down for Christianity. I mean, an amazing thinker. People who know him for like sinners, uh, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, they know him for that. But I mean, some of the most incredible writing, apologetic writings, I think, ever came from a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Brilliant, brilliant guy, 18th century. You can read his stuff. Still, it's out there. He was like 19 or 20 years old, kind of going through some different things in his faith. And he wrote down 70, <laughs> 70 resolutions, 70 ways in which he's going to resolve in his heart how to live on different topics. So he actually kind of did this Daniel thing. He's like, I know I'm going to face different moments, and I'm resolving today how I'm going to respond to this. And I think in his diary, when he wrote these things down, he said, like, um, read these 70 every week. And I kind of put an overview. Like, this is from his diary, essentially what he wrote. Here's how he started off with this. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Okay, he's like, God, by your grace, help me keep these 70 resolutions. I know I can't do it in my own strength. That's very wise. It's not just me. I'm going to try harder. It's like, God, I need your grace to do these. Number one was this, and this is not all of it, but number one, he says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good. And you can go online and read these if you want. <laughs> he has 70 of these things. And it's, all of them start off with resolved. Resolved that I will do whatsoever. Bring God glory. That's for my good. <laughs> It's for his good. Church, here's the thing. 
there will be different moments in your life. You'll be put in circumstances. I cannot encourage you enough to predetermine in your heart how you'll respond. Next time you think, okay, I will be alone with a person of the opposite sex at night past a certain time. Resolve in your heart what you're going to do. I'm going to get my car and drive away as fast as I can. Like, great. Resolve in your heart. Like, say like, to yourself, like, I'm resolving this in my heart in my life. My point is it could be in any situation, any circumstance. Don't wait for you to be in that moment and then decide how you're going to respond. It's so important. Daniel's like, he resolved. He purposed in his heart, this is how I will respond. This is how I will live. I think this is so important for us. Just because you can does not mean you should. Just because, I, I really want you to think about this, by the way. I was trying to like write down different examples of this. Um, if I'm Daniel and I'm his three buddies, I would have had so many excuses on why I can do whatever I want now. I mean, think about this. God, you ripped me from my home in Jerusalem. We are, the, like, we are your chosen people. You've taken me as a prisoner and slave. I'm a kid. I'm away from my family. I'm in Babylon. My first thing is no one will know except these three guys. They'll probably join me eventually. No one will know. God, you did this to me. I'm blaming you for my circumstances. I mean, you could have easily heard his self-talk be like, God, you're the one who put me in this moment. You put the food before me. Obviously, you want me to eat it. I've heard people talk like this so much. Like, oh, God put me there. Obviously, he wants me to do it. I'm like, I don't think that's how it works. But there, you can easily hear the self-talk. God, this is your fault. I'm bitter. I'm mad. I'm angry. Somehow, Daniel is not bitter. I, I really like, I mean, I really can't fathom this. Miles and miles away from home. Somehow, he's not bitter. Somebody's not, somehow, he's not angry. Somehow, he's like, I resolved in my heart. I'm not going to give myself over to this. Like, Daniel's convictions just remain true. It's, it's mind-blowing. There's so much here. And I want you to kind of read this, by the way, because when I pr propose the question, like, how to be faithful in a pagan city, do you notice the conversation going on between him and the chief eunuch? It's so respectful, and, and it's, so, it's so filled with honor. He's like, listen, will you test me? He's like, you know, come on, Daniel, you know I can't do that. Like, he'd be off with my head. Like, I want you to think about that. Like, he's like, he's like hey, think about the request. Hey, please don't let me eat this food. He's like, bro, if you show up and Nebuchadnezzar sees you weak and scrawny and frail, that's not just on you, that's on me. It's like, off with my head. He's like, I know it's a big ask. Think about this. Daniel also would be dead at that point in time. I mean, no, they're not good dudes. Like Nebuchadnezzar killed Zedekiah, the king of Judah. He had his three sons in front of him, murdered his three sons viciously, and then plucked out Zedekiah's eyes. So the last thing he saw was his three sons being murdered. Okay? I mean, he's known for throwing different people, obviously, in the furnace. We're going to see that actually in Jeremiah. You see different men that he threw into the fiery furnace. You see that here in Daniel. My point being, this is not a good dude. Like, basically, it's like, you're defying the king. You're not taking care of the people, like, these people that I put you in charge of. There is a huge ask with Daniel. And I think about the resolve just to ask. I'm just going to ask and see what happens. And it, there's actually this internal dialogue with the chief eunuch. And then this, it says the steward of the eunuch. You can go back and read that. But it seems that Daniel asked the first guy. He's like, no, hey, uh, steward of the eunuchs. And then he's like, um, okay, I guess we can try 10 days out. But just the resolve to keep asking. The risk Daniel put him and his friends in and the eunuch in. Um, I like what uh, John, Hudson Taylor, uh, one of the just primary missionaries to China, he said about risk and in the faith. He said, uh, unless there is the element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. I want to hear that again. Unless there is the element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Why do you need faith if there's no risk involved? If there's no risk, do you need faith? He's like, that's not faith. The point is, Daniel's putting himself, the eunuch, his friends, just by this request. But he's like, no, I have this conviction, and I guess I'll die for this conviction if needed. That's really where he's at. I know what I'm asking you. I know it would look bad if I'm, like, weak and frail. 
and, you know, again, you think about back in that day too, like the idea of looking plump or looking healthy, like whole, vegetables ain't going to do that for you, <laughs> all right? And, and I, I just love that he's like having this internal conversation with this guy going, come on, man. He's like purposing. And I want you to see this. This is so key, by the way, because I, I know I'm jumping ahead just a tiny bit. But obviously, we're going to see in just a second that uh, Daniel, his three friends before Nebuchadnezzar, 10 times smarter, 10 times more able. Just like the, the idea is Daniel in his request was honorable. Daniel in his craft is excellent. Here's why I'm saying this. I think it's easy for Christians to be at work and be like just terrible workers, terrible to their bosses, and be like, I'm a Christian. I'm right. You're wrong. Where's my race? Like, no, we got to stop that, all right? Like, you don't see that in Daniel. You don't see this attitude of, like, smugness. You see him going, like, gently and humbly, and he's like, please, would you consider? You see the language he's using. It's respectful. There's honor there. It's not just, like, this arrogant approach to the king. Also, Nebuchadnezzar sees that. One way to put it is this. Be excellent in your character and in your craft, and watch just what happens. Meaning, how do you be faithful in a pagan city? That was the question originally. The, fir the first response was resolved to be different, Yes. But I want to say this, how do you be faithful in a pagan city? you got a purpose to be excellent in your character and in your craft. That was Daniel and his friends. Like meaning, if you want to make an impact, don't just do bare minimum. Don't just barely get by. Don't just annoy all of your coworkers and have this like attitude of like, you owe me. All right? It's not Daniel. It's, it's mind-blowing, his response, his humility in this. So he goes to the king, or he goes to the eunuch, he asks for this. I, I just cannot stress this enough. You guys, church, listen. We'll be put into the craziest moments. I think this year, I think moving forward, I think we'll be put in, and you've already been a part of it, I've already been a part of it. Different neighbors approach you. What are your thoughts on this? What about this? How do we be faithful to Jesus and also be winsome? How do we say, I'm not going to compromise my convictions, but I'm also going to try to win you to this? And I'm, I'm going to try to redeem this moment. I think Daniel had such an amazing response. Number two is this. So we talked about how to be faithful in a pagan city. Number two is depend on God's grace. Look at verse uh, 15. Verse 15, let's pick up there. Verse 15, it says, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. All right, so when I say depend on God's grace, here's what I mean. Um, we have a tendency in general, not just with Daniel, to moralize the Bible. Do you ever do this? Where, like you read it and be like, all right, therefore be like Daniel. And in some ways, you know, that's true. In some ways, we can't just moralize every passage, meaning here's how not to interpret Daniel. Therefore, we must eat vegetables, right? Let's be really clear. All right, I, I've, I've talked to Christians about this. This is not an argument for why vegetables are better, because they're not, okay? Go look at Liver King. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm being silly. My point is, is, this is not, like, you have to see that this is a miracle. The whole idea, the whole idea that Daniel looks healthier and fatter, it's not because, it's not, it's not a way to moralize scriptures and say, therefore, live this diet. It's a way to say, wow, look how amazing God is to show up when they put themselves in a vulnerable situation. Please hear me on this. The story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, is not to reveal how amazing Daniel and his friends are, but how good and gracious his God is. That is the whole, it's not like, wow, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace, everything they went through. We just, just this moral story, be like them. No. In many ways, yes. Learn from them. Become like them. Yes. But we're not Danielans. We're Christians. All right? It's not just to moralize it, Okay. 
It's to like say, how does this speak of Jesus? How does this relate to my life? Absolutely. But there's something more than just moralizing the story. And here's what I'm trying to bring up. You see God's hand and favor all over Daniel and his friends. Even though they resolved in their heart, this is a story of grace, is it not? I'm going to put the verses up here. And this is not going to seem like grace originally, but I want you to hear this. There's three times it says the Lord gave or God gave in chapter one. Three times God gave. All right, chapter one, verse two, we looked at this last week, but it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord gave, the Lord gave him over to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar. Then it says this, God, look at verse nine, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, we just read it. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God gave, God gave. Everyone say God gave. God gave. Here's the idea. The first one we don't like. All right, let's just look at this. No one likes the idea of chapter one, verse two. God gave them over to the Babylonians. You have to see all that's also grace. That God is like, I'm not just throwing you, I'm not done with you. I fulfilled what I said I would do, which is if you abandon me and betray me and worship other gods, you will be held captive by your, your foreign enemies. That's actually a sign of God's favor. I'm, I'm not leaving you. I'm doing exactly what I said I would do. I love you. I care for you. In 70 years, we'll be back. My point is sometimes um, we don't always like that God gave that, right? I love Job, right? Because Job, Job explains this in deeper ways. Job loses everything. What does he say? The Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be his name. One of the best summaries to me is in Job chapter 13, verse 15. But Job, I think, learned something really profound. He said what to God? He goes, God, though you slay me, I will trust you. <laughs> that, when you read that, I'll say this. I don't know if I'm there. That's an insane statement. I, I want to be that. Like, I want to say to you, oh, there's no doubt on that. But I, no. <laughs> that, that mindset, God, you can slay me. I'm still going to trust you. Job lost his kids, his wealth his name, lost everything, and goes, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. Let me just tell you this about giving. Um, we want to always like highlight the beautiful thing God gives us, but maybe as we see in chapter one, verse two, God gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God gave, there might be certain things like, God, why did you give me this? It's still grace. It's still grace. It's still God sovereignly doing things and working in ways in which we cannot understand and probably won't in this life. But we have to see God gave them over. No one likes the first one. We like the next two. <laughs> but I have to like focus on these things. The story of grace is so clear in the book of Daniel. Even though these guys are beasts in the faith. Even though they're like, do what you must, but I'm still going to be faithful. Like it's, it's mind-blowing, their resilience. But even that, even the resilience is not them. It's still grace. Are you guys following me on this? Because it says, again, and I love it. Yes, the Lord gave them wisdom. The Lord gave them favor with the chief of the eunuchs. And isn't that so cool, by the way? God can give you favor with people you thought you could never have favor with. These little Jewish boys from Jerusalem probably shouldn't have favor with anyone in Babylon, especially by the way they're trying to live. And yet God gave them favor. I love what the book of Proverbs says about this. Uh, Proverbs says in verse 16, verse 7, it says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Whew, isn't that good? Yo, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I would say this. This is the story of God's grace. But this, obviously, these guys lived in such a way where God's like, I love that. And your enemies, I'm going to give you favor now. This is what's happening in Daniel. Live in such a way where you can honor God. You, you, it's like we obviously kind of like live and work like it depends on us, but in reality, it obviously depends on him. The point I'm trying to bring up with this, and you guys know this, um, this is a verse you hear a lot, see a lot, 
and I, I, I know you know this, but I still think it's worth bringing up. This is still a New Testament idea and belief. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, where he says, for by grace, or he says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works of sin, which should boast. We, we know that, but obviously he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what I love about the gospel is like, listen, this is all God's grace. No one's going to heaven because of the things they've done. You, no one can boast in their works. No one can be like, look, I'm so holy. We're boasting in the finished work of Jesus and what he's done for us. We're saying, thank you, God, that you gave your son to die for me, to take my place, and that he rose again from the grave, and that he ascended into heaven, and that because of what he's done, his righteousness is now given into my bank account. My sin was given to him. His righteousness is given to me. I can have eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done. I've been saved by grace through faith, and that is not even myself. That is still the gift of God and grace of God. But then he goes on to say, where's workmanship? In, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, to walk in them. So this idea of like, gosh, God, it's all you, but you've also asked me to walk in them. This is the story of Daniel. God gave him favor with the eunuch. God gave him wisdom and learning and understanding. God gave him crazy wisdom. And it's still, at the same time, Daniel had to resolve and purpose in his heart how to live. I want you to see this. It's, it's, it goes to the Philippians 2. Maybe you've heard that, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The next verse says, for it's God who works in you. So Philippians is saying, it's God who works in you. Work out what he worked in. Please hear that. Work out what he worked in. God worked something in you. Salvation, new life, the Holy Spirit. Work it out. Daniel, same thing. God's like, I'm giving you grace and favor. This is literally the word has said. It's like, I'm giving you a, f a covenantal kindness and goodness, Daniel, with the eunuch. I'm giving you insane favor in all wisdom and learning. By the way, if you're crazy smart, if you're crazy brilliant, don't you dare for a second to be like, that's because of me. God gave you that brain to be crazy smart. God gave you that brain to excel in your field and understand certain areas of life. Amazing. I don't doubt you worked hard, but don't you dare take credit for it. God gave you that mind that can connect the dots and your neurons are firing. That is the grace and goodness of God. But yet we still think it's, think it's us. Oh my gosh, we're so fragile. By no means it's us. By no means it's us. So I love it. God gave him favor with the eunuchs. God gave him favor in this way. And he still had to resolve in his heart. So here's the idea. Um, this is a story of God's grace and you have to see it. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me. Um, I love what Spurgeon talks about. He talks about this because um, there is a frustration, I think, between the Christian view of God's sovereignty and providence versus like modern day's kind of view of fate. And people kind of have like this, like, I don't know, really kind of uh, sad view of just like, well, that's the way it is. Can't change anything. And I'm like, I don't know if that's how it works either. Christians, by the way, we don't believe in fate. We believe in God's providence. And there is a difference. You guys with me? We don't believe in fate. We believe in God's providence. You're like, what does that mean? What's the difference? I don't know. I'm going to let Spurgeon explain. All right. Here's what Spurgeon says. So good. He says, what is fate? Listen to this. Fate is this. This is true. This is so good. Whatever is must be. Look what people talk like. Whatever it is must be, but there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be, but the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there's between a man with good eyes and a blind man. So good. I, that's why I can't say better than that. There's something about God's providence where you go, there's purpose and ordination. God has designed it in a way. And the crazy thing we're going to see in Daniel, and why I love this book so much, is God is over all the empires of the world, and Daniel's prayer life still changed things. 
I don't understand that, but I can't wait to explore that with you. God is going to do what he wants to do. But yet, what he wants to do is involve us, and he involves us through calling on him and seeking him, and we're going to see prayer and fasting. And I love this because, yes, God is ultimately sovereign, but God's like, in my sovereignty, I want to use you to change the systems of this world and how things might play out. And we're going to see this beautifully in Daniel 10. So I'm getting ahead of myself. But what I want you to see is this is not a story of, man, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, great guys. This is a story of how awesome they are. It's a story of God's grace. God gave them favor. God gave them favor in learning. God did this. Amen? Don't just think they're amazing. Know this. There's a beautiful thing. You, anything you have is the grace and gift of God. God gave you favor. You have all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 says. All the heavenly blessings. Everything you need, you have in Christ Jesus. Don't you dare act for a second like you're a victim or I'm a victim. Like, we have everything we need in Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. <laughs> no one here. If you're like, I lack, then you're still not preaching the gospel to yourself. You don't lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. I shall not want. You have Jesus, you have everything. Don't you dare act like you're at a disadvantage. I can't act like that. Why? Because of Jesus and my identity in him. Because of your identity in Jesus. It's unbelievable. If you have Jesus, he's saying you have everything. So I want you to see that. And then, so it's a story of grace, but then they resolved in their hearts. They also work. So how do we be faithful? It's God's grace. We have to resolve. And lastly, this is probably the hardest one, especially with all the people who like the outcome thing. We have to trust God with the results. Meaning, resolve in your heart, depend on God's grace, and in reality, you have to just trust God with the results. Are you with me on this? Look at verse 18. Trust God with the results. All right, so here's the thing. I mean, this could have played out much differently, right? Daniel could be like, I don't want to eat the food. And then he could look scrawny. God miraculously showed up. We all know that vegetables is not the source of being healthy, okay? Just want to make that out there. For all the parents who are like, therefore, eat your vegetables. You're wrong. Sorry, eat your meat. Um, but at verse 18, we see God show up, and it says this. At, at uh, the end of the time, at the end of the three years, what the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And listen to this, in every matter, everyone say every matter. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. We will see again how this plays out in chapter 2. But when I say trust God with the results, I kind of said this at the very beginning, but I need to be really clear again. Look at the ending of the story. The ending is amazing. But it's not guaranteed that, that way. The ending was amazing. The ending is Nebuchadnezzar goes, yes, I trust you guys more than all my other uh, counselors and enchanters. I trust you guys way more, 10 times more. It's unbelievable what you guys have done and said in your insight you offer. It's unbelievable. So I want to make sure I want to make this point clear before I move on. It is possible to be faithful to God, resist temptation, and at the same time still be successful and respected by the outside world. You have to know that. I really do think there's this weird belief, especially in the church, that's like, well, if I'm faithful to God, I cannot be successful. Wrong. Joseph was so faithful to God, thrown in prison. I mean, he went through, you know, circumstance after circumstance, but still rose to the top in prison, or rose to the top in Potiphar's house, or rose to the top uh, with Pharaoh. The point is, you can be faithful to God and still have, quote-unquote, success to the outside world. This is Daniel. I love this. Because if you ever feel like, well, I can never be a true, passionate follower of Jesus and, like, thrive in my work, wrong. That's a lie. Now, listen, here's the point. I'm not trying to say this. I'm not trying to say, guaranteed, you'll have the same conclusion. That's not the guarantee. Just stay with me on that. But it's possible. It's possible. If God wants to do that, he can absolutely do that. You can thrive at your work and still be resilient in your faith. Absolutely, it is possible. 
It's not guaranteed to have the same outcome, but it's absolutely possible. Because here's the idea. Success is simply faithfulness to God. I, I don't know how you define success. It's like, success to me is I make a lot of money. I don't know, whatever. Success is faithfulness to God. So if you want success, just be faithful to God. You'll have it. Redefine success. But you can thrive. Warren Wearsby said this. I thought it was so good because I think it's easy for us as Christians to like lose hope or feel like we're losing the cultural battle. But I love what, I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, there's no reason why Christian students on secular campuses today shouldn't be among the finest students who win some of the highest awards to the glory of God. Is that not Daniel and his three friends? Yo, we, we don't have to just feel defeated and lost. I'm so thankful that some of the most brilliant minds of the last several thousand years have been followers of Jesus. I know I've mentioned this book, but if you want encouragement, go read Can Science Explain Everything by John Lennox, and he gives individual after individual who won like the Nobel Peace Prize, Christian. They won the Scientific Prize, Christian. And he just gives, like, basically the last century, over half of the awards in the Nobel Peace Prize community have been by followers of Jesus in the, the 20th century, 21st century. That's mind-blowing. We feel like we're losing, but Christian minds, perspectives have been some of those influential minds throughout history, all right? So you can be successful and also resent temptation, and be resilient in faith. They're not mutually exclusive. Are you following me on that? It's not like, well, if I'm faithful to Jesus, I'm obviously going to be terrible at this area. No, you can actually thrive in both areas. But I do want to make it really clear. Here's like a little asterisk. We don't know how it will always end. It ended this way, and it'll also end in other ways for them. It's not, it's not over yet. We'll still see the lions. We'll still see the furnace. But it sounds pretty good here. Ten times smart, smarter, ten times more like used by the king. Sounds amazing. But we're, we don't know the end. Here's why I'm bringing this up, and I, I cannot lose you on this, because I just feel like there's, um, there's a really bad movement in the church that we have to, like, acknowledge. Here, here's the idea. Daniel had faith. Did he not? Did he not have extreme faith? Can we just acknowledge that? Did Daniel's friends not have crazy faith? Time, and we'll see this time and time again. And by God's grace, this is their outcome this time. It's not like they asked for vegetables and they're immediately killed. The story could be over. Be like, the book of Daniel's over. They ate, their, they ate their vegetables and died. All right, that's not, that's not how it goes, though. And this is why I think this is so important. This book of Hebrews calls this out, actually. And I need you to hear this. It's Hebrews chapter 11. Please listen to this. We'll put the verses up here. It's so profound. Hebrews 11, verse 32. Here's what it says. He's talking about faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. Please hear this. He says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, listen, through faith, they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. We'll see that. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Aren't you like, yes, this is amazing. Literally follow the next verse. Women received their dead, uh, raised to life again. Others were tortured. <laughs> Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Listen, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking and scourging. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn into. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world, listen, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us. God provides them better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Here's why this is so important. You, you and I hear this, I think, too often. Maybe the world hears this, or maybe, maybe not the church, maybe not our church, but there is this idea, like, if you have faith, the outcome will be amazing. And if you have a bad outcome, it's because you don't have enough faith. Absolutely a lie from Satan, okay? 
I love this. I love that he's like, by faith, some subdued kingdoms, and the women raised back their dead children. By faith, amazing thing happens. And by faith, some were sawn in half, and some were tortured, and some lost it all. It was still by faith. And I love this list in Hebrews, because he's like, listen, some of you by faith will go out, and it will look to the outside world as victorious, and look like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Their faith led amazing outcomes. Some will be like, look at they had faith. Why did they die this horrific death? Maybe they didn't have faith. We cannot think that. We cannot think that. There are too many followers of Jesus who had amazing faith, who died brutal deaths. Don't we dare think for a second, well, I guess if they had more faith, they wouldn't have died that way. No, that is a lie. And I'm bringing this up because, listen, I love Daniel. I love Shadrach, Meshach, and I love these guys. And they had faith. And this time, right now, at least in this story, cool. We got the outcome. They got to stand before the king, and the king's like, yo, I respect you guys. Ten times smarter than everyone else. Amazing ending. There's still going to be more little endings to come. But my point being, that's awesome this time, but it might not be next time. And I don't want you to lose faith when the outcome doesn't go the way you you think. Because if I said, in conclusion, you have faith, you'll stand before kings. Not necessarily. Please, I don't want to moralize it. In conclusion, if you have enough faith... I mean, you're going to have an amazing life and thrive and be really wealthy. No, not at all. You might be like Hebrews 11. By faith, they were tortured. Huh? By faith, they were persecuted. Both groups had faith. They had different outcomes. We don't control the outcome. I need you to hear that. You don't control the outcome, but be faithful. If God wants to raise up and bless, awesome. If you want to have a tragic death, God's still faithful. God's still good. Be faithful. Don't try to control the outcome. Just try to rest in God and be faithful in the moment. And I cannot encourage you enough. Like, we, we care so much about the outcome when I'd say just fight for the moment. Listen, there's some things in my life I want the outcome to change now. <laughs> but God's like, be faithful in the moment. There's some things right now I wish I could change. God shows me how much little authority and power I really have. What do I have? I have the opportunity to be faithful in the moment. I'm going to be faithful in this parenting moment. I'm going to be faithful in this integrity moment. I want to control the outcome. I want a different outcome. But God's like, just be faithful in the moment. We don't know how it's going to end, right? The, the phrases that were used, God having provided something better for us, for the group that lost it all. Keep that in mind. I love this, of whom the world was not worthy. <laughs> we might, to us, go, those people, they must have not had enough faith. No, the world was not worthy of them. That's how scripture views it. So anything you hear on TV about if you have enough faith, this good thing will happen, that is a lie from Satan. Be faithful. Be faithful. Don't worry about the outcome. Just be faithful in the moment. So listen, how do you remain faithful in a pagan city? Be resilient. Resolve in your hearts that you're going to be different. I would say depend deeply in God's grace. Do not try to control the results or the outcome. Just be faithful in the moment. Yes? Amen? The Exchange Church, by God's grace, here we are six years later. By God's grace, COVID did not win. <laughs> like, we were online with like five people watching. By God's grace, <laughs> we are here. And we're here just to celebrate Jesus and his goodness and what he's done. Be resilient, but it's God who gets the glory. Be resilient, but God's the one who did it. Respond to this grace, man. This grace is available to you today. If you do not know Jesus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Receive the grace of Jesus and you will be saved. Receive the grace of Jesus. I just want to invite you into the greatest gift ever through the person of Jesus. Amen? We are going to worship and praise just for a few minutes. And then we're going to go have some barbecue. Does that sound good? We're going to do exactly the opposite of Daniel. All right? <laughs> Sorry, but let's do that. Let's pray. Let's worship. Not the exact opposite. Terrible ending. Forgive me. Let's just pray. Uh, Father, we just want to say thank you so much for what you've done. 
God, I ask that this would not just be stories we have read or heard in the past, but Jesus, write it on our hearts. We honestly, Lord, want to be reminded of you. You are the greater than Daniel who resolved in your heart that you would face the cross because of the joy that was set before you. That's unbelievable, Lord. Daniel's resolve is nothing compared to what Jesus, you resolved in your heart to do for us, that you took on the sin of the world so that we might be saved. And so we just want to say thank you. We look to you. We want to praise you now in your precious name, God, that you would just be blessed and glorified by our song, by whether we eat or drink, that we'd all do for your glory. In your precious name, amen.